If Theology Nara has blessed you or challenged you or encouraged you on some level, then I would like to invite you to consider supporting the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to various kinds of premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts, the ability to ask me questions and dialogue with other Patreon supporters. Uh, Gold level supporters are able to participate in monthly Zoom chats where we talk about uh, pretty much everything. Those chats can get pretty wild sometimes, and I absolutely love it. So join the uh, Theology and Raw community by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Raw. My guest today is the one and only Dr. David Taylor, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Seminary, has a doctorate from Duke Divinity School, is the author of several books, including his most recent book, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role our, of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. I so enjoyed this conversation. We go, we kind of go all over the map from a theology of the arts to horror films to the roles of of our bodies in, in worship, at different liturgical and worship styles and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, uh, this was a super fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed getting to know David for the first time. So please welcome to the show, the one and only David Taylor. David, thanks for joining us at the All General. Thanks for having me. Great to be so here. I first, I mean, I, I, when you reached out a few months ago um, and sent me your book, which we'll get to, I was like, "That's that name sounds familiar." And I looked you up, and I'm like, "Oh, wait, you're the guy who did that short film with Bono and Eugene Peterson." <laughs> I am that guy. <laughs> what I mean, I, can we start there? Are, are you still going to talk about that? Like, how did you arrange? And people don't know what I'm talking about. You did the short, like, 20 minute film sure. where. Again, if people don't know, Eugene Peterson has had a major impact on on Bono and his faith, and yeah. um, and so there's this film of them kind of getting together, hanging out at Eugene's house in Montana, and then talking yeah. through kind of the Psalms in particular, and just mm-hmm. kind of kind of almost a theology in the arts a little bit, which we're going to get yeah. into. Yeah, yeah. How, how did that come about? Like that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it is a long story. So, so I, I, unfortunately, I, I can't give all the details. But in the fall of 2014, there's no no other way to say this except that I actually had a dream in which Bono and Eugene were talking to each other. And I woke up and at breakfast, I told my wife, wouldn't it be so cool <laughs> if that actually happened in real life? She's like, sure. Yeah, it would be cool. <laughs> I was like, but no, seriously, like, what if it could happen? <laughs> and uh, so the long and short of it is I, I got a hold of Eugene, asked him, and he said he was open to something like that. And then I knew Charlie Peacock. He, he's a musician, producer, lives in Nashville. Um, he wrote that song, I Want to Be in the Light, as you oh, were in the yeah, light, yeah. In the early yeah. 90s. It was, it was a big song. Uh, he produced some of Amy Grant stuff. And uh, he had hosted Bono's home in the early 2000s when Bono was doing all that kind of Africa debt relief stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Bono is just, I mean, he is, he's an activist. Uh, he's a statesman. And so he was meeting with all kinds of populations that he thought could make a difference. So he met with a bunch of musicians in Nashville, Christian musicians, and Charlie Peacock hosted them. And so I happened to be at a retreat with Charlie and Eugene Peterson actually happened to be at that retreat. And so I approached Charlie and said, what are the chances that Bono would say yes? And he's like, 5%, 2%, 1%. He's like, actually 50% um, that he might say yes. 
So long and short, I crafted a letter and then it kind of got passed down through various, you know, emissaries. And then it went silent for a long time. And I thought, you know, that's it. You know, I tried um, and uh, it's not going to happen. And then uh, in January 2015, I was teaching class and, and during a break, I opened up my email and I, got, I had an email from somebody in Ireland saying, Bono's interested. <laughs> no way. And um, and so then it was incredibly difficult to find a time to meet because U2 was rehearsing for their Songs of Innocence tour oh, that was yeah. just about to launch. And it's like one afternoon, two hour slot on April 19th, he could do it. And so uh, we planned for him to fly his his jet to a small town in Montana where Eugene Jan Peterson lived. And uh, his condition was that he would get to spend one hour with Eugene and Jan by himself mm. and then one hour on camera. And it wasn't it wasn't until a year later that I actually uh, found out from Bono himself why he wanted that hour with Eugene. And and. Uh, he shared with me that he had sort of been carrying these uh, the, these heavy weights of unconfessed things in his life, and he wanted to unburden himself with with Eugene and Jan. And I thought that was really beautiful. So yeah, so we uh, spent an hour on camera talking about the Psalms, and then um, and then he flew back to Vancouver where they're rehearsing. And then on, on Tuesday morning, when I landed back in Houston with my wife where we were living at the time, I opened up my email and I had an email from, from Paul David Houston himself, <laughs> uh, which is his birth name. And he was expressing appreciation for the invitation, but also regret that he had not come fully prepared. And he asked if he could make it up to me somehow. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I don't know how, but sure. Yes. Let's figure out a way you can make it up to me. And uh, so then, you know, through all of the intermediaries um, that are a part of his world, we arranged uh, to meet him uh, on his tour through New York City uh, that summer. And uh, we would record an, an extra session on the Psalms with him. And then that extra material got folded in uh, to the final short film. So oh, it was amazing. Okay. Yeah, it was wow. pretty awesome. <laughs> what was it like interacting? I'm sorry. It's not... <laughs> I'll try not to fanboy too much, but what was it like interacting with them? Was he... Quite... he was... I, I always picture people like that, kind of more introverted, reserved, just kind of, yes. you know... Um... Yeah, he he I mean, he's got a big personality, but he has this I think amazing ability to modulate to whomever he's with. Um I found him to be a little bit shy, yeah. Um very very kind, very generous when he came into the Peterson home. Uh, obviously he'd introduced himself or greeted Eugene and Jan and then he greeted me, greeted my wife and there are five film crew and he went around introducing himself to each person. Hmm. And then I noticed on the when he was leaving that he said bye to the Petersons, to me, to Phaedra, my wife. And then he said goodbye to each of the film crew by name. Like he oh, remembered wow. names. Um, he had come with a gift for the Petersons. He's he's a gift giver. And so just um very kind, unassuming in a in a way. Um uh, very very, I don't know how else to say this, but very present, very real. Uh, he was not trying to pretend to be something that he was not. And then, you know, recently after reading his memoir, um, you know, some of the pennies dropped in terms of my experience and how it sort of mapped out into his whole life. And he's been married to his high school sweetheart for 40 years. And That's like, crazy. Yeah. there's something like, there's an integrity, you know, yeah. to his life, to his work that kind of plays out. And there's just, there's no faking it. 
like either he really is himself, he is at home in his own skin or he's not. And like his ability to be at home with us, a bunch of nobodies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It was just very impressive. Mm. So, did you already know Eugene before that? Like, was it? I okay. did. Okay. Yeah. So I went to seminary in Vancouver, a place called Regent College. Right. And uh, he was teaching there at the time. Okay. And uh, so I had him in, in class. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I, um, I was at some anniversary. It's kind of like invite only, maybe like a hundred people, um, through, was it Nav Press? Is, are they the producers of the message or? You were there? Yeah. Were you there? I was there. Oh, no way. The big <laughs> castle out in Colorado. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the, whatever that's called, that castle like place. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? He, he, he had produced a film that Nav Press, you know, had, um, had, you know, I guess, uh, underwritten. Okay. And, Yes, yeah. we're there. Uh, yeah, I sat at a dinner between Sally Lloyd Jones, uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, yeah, and, and, and Voskamp. <laughs> it was very bizarre, uh, but pretty fun too. It's funny because I didn't know hardly anybody. I mean, that was a while ago, and right. I didn't. Yeah, looking back, there's probably a lot of names that I now recognize. Then I didn't even. I was right. like, I was there for the free <laughs> free castle and free food and chance That's to see, right. see uh, Eugene. Uh, I remember the, the by fun the funniest line ever was you know, them asking Jan, you know, what's it like being married to Eugene? And, and she said, well, the boy doesn't talk too much. And, she, and he jumps in and says, I'm too busy listening. <laughs> it's like, oh my word. Yeah, no. All right. So you've done it. You've done a ton of work on um, the relationship. Well, yeah, I don't know how to word it. Uh, the theology of the arts, really. Um, you've written several books. You teach courses on it. How did you, well, first of all, can you maybe... Let's just go 101 for somebody that might hear that phrase, a theology of the arts, and mm. not be able to quite understand what that even means. So let's start there. What is, what is a theology of the arts? And then how did you get into this specific sure. discipline? Yeah, I think there are maybe two ways of looking at theology and the arts, maybe two sides of the same coin. Uh, some folks in the field, in the academic world, are interested in theological reflections on art, on works of art, on the process of art making, history of art. And then others are actually interested on how works of art can become sources or sites for theological reflection. And someone like Jeremy Begbie, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, you know, he's been writing on this for quite some time. And his area of, of expertise is music. And so mm -hmm. showing how music can become a kind of uh, grammar uh, for discovering how we can think about who God is. And so, you know, one of the more common or popular illustrations that he uses is, you know, the, the three chord note and how, you know, th three notes together make a chord and all three subsist in the same sonic space in a non-competitive way. And uh, offering that as a metaphor for how the Trinity, how the Father, mm. Son, Spirit can occupy, as it were, <laughs> mm -hmm. the same divine space in a non-competitive, uh, you know, fashion. Yeah. Uh, so music can do things that maybe written language or philosophical, discursive, analytical language perhaps struggles to do. And that is we can, through music, as it were, see <laughs> by hearing how it is that three things, three distinct things, particular things, can be also one thing together. So that would be sort of the explanation of theology in the arts. Some people are interested in kind of like 
you know, biblical reflections or Christological reflections on on art making. Uh, how do we think about you know music and film and dance and and drama and poetry? And others are interested in like how works of art can become uh, sites for a theological reflection. How, how the Psalms, for example, as as poetic texts, are doing theology, not uh, illustrating theology. Mm. So, for example, the language of the Lord is my shepherd is is a metaphor. And so some in the theology and the arts conversation would want to make the case that it's not that that Jesus, who calls himself a shepherd, is, is incapable of finding a better, more precise way of saying that he cares for yeah. his sheep. It's that the metaphor is actually polyvalent. It's doing a whole bunch of things in this one space of a metaphor. And it's through some of that complex of, of meaning that you discover what it means for Jesus to be a shepherd. And so by extension, all the arts are kind of operating in this kind of metaphorically dense, rich way, helping us understand things about the world or God or ourselves uh, in unique ways. So that would be, I guess, a, a kind of explanation of what the theology and the arts conversation is. Okay. That's super helpful. I, I thought, so I, I uh, years ago, I, I, I taught briefly at Nottingham University and they had a oh, yeah. whole, um, like a theology, somebody was teaching, I forgot who it was, a theology of film course. If I remember who it was, you, you yeah. might recognize, I know it's kind of a small field of people yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this. Um, and I remember being fascinated for the first time, kind of thinking, we'd had a lot of conversations and thinking through how, how even films can be part of, I, again, I'm going to use probably inaccurate language, but almost like general revelation that, you know, almost... <laughs> Yeah. And not even sometimes intentionally, but just, you know, you have filmmakers who are created in God's image who right. have, you know, I forget who said it, the spark of the divine in them. And there's just this, this attraction yeah. to the divine narrative and it might be skewed and off kilter or whatever, but there is this kind of um, natural a draw to themes of redemption and how that comes out in in films and, and so on. Yeah. And I found that fascinating that because usually, you know, Growing up in, like I was most kind of Christian circles, you know, your your theology of film is, you know, does it have too much swearing and nudity and, you know, right. <laughs> drug scenes or witchcraft or something, you know, and like, that's our theology of film. And it's like, it was just so flat. Like, I don't know, like even, even um to my mind, and I don't know, you can, I would love your thoughts on this. I, uh, you know, to me, a, a film that doesn't contain sin mm. is almost being dishonest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, and I don't know how where the line is there. To me, it's like, is the film making sin attractive? Even that, it's like, well, sin is attractive. Is that is that even dishonest? But is it pulling my heart toward sin or toward God? I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you navigate? I get this question a lot recently. Like, should we watch, you know, Oppenheimer? It's got sex scenes in it. And I, I just, I don't know how to answer. Yeah. I don't know how to answer these questions. Have you thought through... I, I, yeah. I didn't bring on to talk about theology of film, but I'm sure you're <laughs> way further ahead than I am in, in this, even if this isn't your main right. um, Okay, well, l- let me avoid Oppenheimer. I haven't seen it, but I'm aware of, of you know, some of those yeah. scenes. I'm aware that Christians have have written about it recently. I, I think it, it, these things are far more complex and interesting than sometimes Christians often allow. Okay. Uh, and I think some Christian communities want a very, very simple, uh, you know, put in a coin into the machine and then the answer pops out and then they can walk away. I think they demand a little bit more uh, reflection, careful reflection um, and conversation. When I was a pastor, 
uh, after seminary, I was a pastor for about 10 years. And, um, part of my responsibilities was the care of a community of artists. And it was wonderful. Mm. Some of our, our, our artists were filmmakers and some of those filmmaker, filmmakers were interested in the genre of horror mm. and they wanted to know my thoughts on it. And then I told them, I'm not sure I had, you know, any developed thoughts, but you know, if they gave me a chance, you know, I could come back. So I did a little bit of research and then I hosted a conversation at our church on the genre of horror mm. and uh, offered a little bit of a history of, of the horror genre, you know, going beyond, you know, the history of film into the 19th century, you know, Gothic era of literature and even back further into the medieval age and its idea of carnival and even back into the Greco-Roman mythological stories of all these creatures that are, you know, half breeds and dark dark and the fears of the unknown and the future and uh it was a fascinating discussion and i tried to help him understand what the genre was doing like if there's a logic to horror like what is it trying to do in the world and why is it that human beings have drawn been drawn towards this genre what are they trying to make sense of and so I gave some examples from the history of film and I made some connection to scripture and to, you know, the four beasts, you know, in the book of revelation, yeah, which yeah. is rather horrific, right. Uh, or even connections to represent visual representations of Jesus on the cross, which might be regarded as grotesque and a lot of horror kind of ventures into that. And, uh, we had a, a marvelous discussion and at the end of which most of the people in the rooms, um, said, you know, thank you. This was very illuminating and, 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 and inspiring in some ways, but I'm still not going to watch horror films. I was like, that's fine. That's totally, you know, great. Like that's a, like a wonderful outcome that you have understanding. You have some insight into why it is that humans, um, find the horror genre to be this unique vehicle to make sense of evil. And I think the best horror movies are naming evil as evil, sin mm. as sin, and the warping, distorting effects of evil and sin as truly, comprehensively, systematically disastrous, right? Mm. Um, and I think this is where maybe some Christians have failed to take <laughs> the truth of sin and the truth of evil seriously enough. And so have maybe whitewashed or, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, photoshopped sin uh, uh, in, in a way that I think scripture does not um, do that. You know, it brings, it reckons uh, with sort of the, 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 the nightmarish nature of evil and sin. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, with great care and thoughtfulness and as your conscience allows in certain circumstances, we can venture into these spaces, let's say, you know, movies as such and horror movies in particular, and ask ourselves what is true, uh, what is honest, what is good, um, what story is being told that needs to be told in order to bring us not just face to face with the horrific terrible nature of evil and sin in our world, but also the possibility of hope, the possibility of grace, the possibility of a hint that all will be well at some point. And I think the best, say, horror movies do this really well. Um, so, I mean, I know I'm focusing on horror movies. We could talk about any genre, yeah. genre of, you know, of, of art for that matter, but maybe that would be like a little answer. That No, I've had people that are kind of in the kind of theology of film space that say horror movies typically are the most uh, theologically thoughtful and powerful and mm -hmm. like these are kind of the apex of the kind of film and theology genre I, there's a, a a guy who i knew from i mean from a distance but he taught at a very conservative 
mm. Christian college, you mm. you would recognize the name. And I'm he taught a class on theology and film, and I think he made them all watch Poltergeist or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're <laughs> but I remember him saying like that movie actually is like the he mm. just went off on how incredible mm. that movie was just from a meaning perspective. And and mm-hmm. I never just never thought about it. I just thought horror, like same thing. You come at it with a flat understanding, and I'm like it's just you know all this witchcraft, all this evil stuff, and it's just trying to scare you. And you know, but I'm like, I, there's, yeah, there's so much more to it. And I, yeah, I've recently been getting into some horror. I typically never really liked the genre, but because people keep telling me how thoughtful it, so I've been watching more. And my kids are freaking out because I'm not the, I don't get the least bit scared. And like, what's wrong with you? you do, like, are you? I watched The Conjuring the other night in a hotel room by myself with the lights out, and I didn't even, I don't know. Um, but yeah, even that movie, that's like, wow, that, that, when you open up your mind and start asking deeper questions, it's like, there's, right. yeah, there's more going on here than just, let's see how we can scare our audience, you know? Um, anyway, yeah. that's not what, yeah. I think at some level, what's fascinating about the 20th century horror genre, I guess, and, and film has become the predominant medium by which most people experience it, mm-hmm. is how it consistently interrogates the presumptions of our modern era Mm. about what is real uh you know yeah naturalism materialism scientism you know sort of these ideas that what can be measured and placed into a laboratory and scientifically verified that that is only the reliable and the real um and horror genre is just pressing into like the metaphysical straining point of that presumption and saying maybe there's something more to what it means to be human maybe there's something beyond the cosmos i just think that's just such a theologically rich space mm. for christians to you know participate in and again to each maybe their own conscience um mm. and it's such a contextual thing but i i guess that's why i'm in this yeah. field the theology and the arts that's good i, I always thought that stranger things mm. is one of the best representations of how thin the actual if you just take the Bible seriously, how thin the line is between Mm. the so-called spiritual realm and the so-called material realm, how they are just blurred together in a way that's hard to even, like, you can't even describe, like when I, it was the first time I'm like, I read, I read the Bible. I do read it differently now. Or I I Mm -hmm. feel like Mm -hmm. we actually, there isn't upside down. Like we, (laughs) (laughs) like this could, I could not, I mean, right. I mean, I I can't think of a better way to portray that that line is so blurry, you know, um, do you, do you agree with that? Or is that, I, I again, I, I, do you feel yeah. like they miss, miss it on some level too, or? Um... Oh, no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I, I resonate with that. And again, maybe part of what drove me to write this book on the body is to I mean, perhaps press gently, mm-hmm. but invite vigorously Christians to consider the possibility that they are more naturalists, oddly or, or, or weirdly, they're more mm-hmm. uh, um, materialist um, than they would be willing to concede. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that so many Christians perhaps have bought into the assumption of the Western world that that what I can empirically and rationally you know, verify, that's what's real. And all this other stuff, you know, the so-called supernaturalist or miraculous or the demonic is just, uh, you know, sort of the um, 
the excesses of, of, uh, of unsanctified, immature imagination. Now, obviously, on the other side, you do have sectors of the church, the global church, that maybe go to the extreme, and everything is, is an over-realized, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, supernaturalism. Uh, everything has like a supernaturalist, and so you, you're, you're playing the, uh, the Dan Brown game of, you know, the, the codes. You're finding the codes for everything, and, and yeah. you have a healthy appreciation for you know what the medieval church called the second book of god you know which is yeah. the creation and we can study it and we can discover things about it so it's somewhere in the middle is stranger things <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. that's good so, yeah. so yeah your most recent book body of praise a body of praise understanding mm-hmm. the role of our physical bodies in worship when mm-hmm. i first saw the title i was like all right here's some Pentecostal guy that's going to be telling me to I need to be running around in some frenzy with a flag during worship services or something, you know, like nothing wrong with that. Okay. I'm not, but I'm just like, I don't know. Like, it's not my, it's not my tradition. I mean, just, I'm, I'm, you know, I've come a long way folks. I came from, you know, anti-charismaticism to now believing in the gifts and now, you know, I mean, I'm okay now with, you know, raising my hands kind of, you know, but no, this this book is richly theological. I was so mm-hmm. blown away. At, not not I, once I saw your, you know, oh, this guy's an academic. He's gonna bring a lot more maybe theological uh, depth to this topic. But um, yeah, I was really, I was first of all really impressed with how much robust theological anthropology is is just you mm-hmm. know is a foundation mm-hmm. to the whole book and and just opening up these categories of how multifaceted the body is even as you start discussing like what is the body and everybody's like well it's just the body it's like well you have you know culture you have the biological body the cultural body um the social body and and all these various kind of aspects of the body and and i thought that was really helpful you begin um by talking about the pandemic and how you know for depending on where you live you know for several months maybe even more than a year. I live in Idaho, so the pandemic lasted about three weeks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for a period of time, we were participating in corporate worship through a screen. And you you kind of really come right out of the gate and unpack how antithetical, not not necessary for, I mean, what else are you going to do? Okay. I mean, but just how antithetical that is to the theology of corporate worship and i know everybody's gonna say yeah it's better to be in person well it's it's like it's not just there's something intrinsically massively missing um when we're not embodied together can can you open that up for us expand on that like like how why it's so necessary to be gathering in person and how that that was just a yeah I'll, i'll i'll leave it at that there's so many different avenues we can go there but um yeah, I mean, obviously, we've had several years now for scientists and psychologists and sociologists, historians, for that matter, to make sense. And I, I imagine, you know, we will continue to make sense because the effects will have sort of waves. Um, you know, for those of us, for all of us, you know, who experience this firsthand, you know, there's the initial shock of it all, right? Uh, the the worry of it all, the anxiety, the anxiety that then sort of metastasize into this, you know, cancerous stress. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, depending on where you are on planet Earth, you sheltered in place, uh, perhaps in your home exclusively. 
And maybe you were single, maybe you were, you know, empty nesters, maybe you had seven kids and, you know, all those experiences were unique. Your personality probably came into play, access to technology, the kind of church Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you uh, participated, you know, in and what technological, you know, uh, instruments they had at their disposal early on. Um, What I found fascinating, you know, as I read uh, about that period in, in retrospect is, is some scientists came up with the language of of uh this idea of touch deficiency syndrome mm. and uh related it to you know all those studies that were done about babies you know and orphanages that never received any kind of meaningful positive touch in those early formative stages and how that uh translated into this um you know chemical neurological physical psychosomatic sense of being ill at ease in the world unsafe in the world fundamentally disoriented hmm. i think that is what many of us experienced um we experienced depression hmm. uh because the, the the being cut off from creation being cut off from community being cut off from uh, embodied exchanges, you know, with others slowly, but surely, you know, was innervating. It, it, it was devitalizing. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, as some on one side may say, well, maybe you weren't strong enough. <laughs> and I'm like, well, maybe your theology is not good enough. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, obviously I'm arguing against that sort of like, if you were tough enough, you could have endured in a black box, you know, deprived mm. of all sensory, you know, connection to the world around you. And I, I guess I would simply say human beings are made from the earth. We are quite literally earthlings. We are made of biological material. We subsist in and through the rhythms of creation. Hmm. And by that fact alone, we we need uh, to have a, a firsthand, you know, tactile experience of, of the earth and the rhythms of the earth. And so the sheltering in place mm-hmm. was itself, you know, devitalizing to the extent that we could not maybe go outside, maybe into our front yards, backyards, but even then certain cities were like, don't do that. And again, maybe certain cities, certain populations live in apartment complexes. They could not go into a front yard because they didn't have a front yard, right? Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I would say theologically, um, God has made human beings to be uh, not in voluntary relationship with one another. Uh, Human beings are are not in contractual relations with one another, which is to say, like, well, I will find benefit from you when I feel like it. And when I don't feel like it, you know, Mm -hmm. I will be an autonomous individual. Uh, You know, in in contrast, maybe to that kind of philosophical way of perceiving the world, God has made us fundamentally, as you well know, and uh, everybody else on, on your podcast, you know, has probably said over repeatedly over past number of episodes human beings are made from the earth and they're made from one another so we have come out from one another and we are mutually constituting mutually animating we rely uh, upon one another's very physical existence in order to flourish Mm -hmm. and um and so when we gather communally in an embodied space we are experiencing the kind of corporeal and corporate worship, corporate life that God has designed for us fundamentally. So when we sing, for example, and I write about this in the chapter on sciences, uh, scientists talk about how when human beings sing in a common space, their neurons begin to um, wire together, like they call it 
effect. And 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 that's that experience of corporate corporeal embodied singing um, is tapping into these hormonal places in our brains and bodies that uh, fund a sense of kinship, fund a sense of being felt by one another. And again, I think that's why, you know, concerts like Taylor Swift are so, mm. like, like people are, are craving that kind mm. of experience because it is actually ontologically what helps them to feel that they belong somewhere, that, that they are someone belonging to a bigger something and for us as Christians, we are belonging to this you know, many-membered body of Jesus. Mm. It's how God has designed us. So we were not meant to, to exist in isolation. That being said, obviously the pandemic increased our attentiveness, perhaps, our, our sense of sim- sympathetic um, community with the shut-ins, the chronically mm. sick, the elderly, those that are disabled in any you know, capacity, those who are persecuted, you know, in parts of the world. And that's that's a beautiful kinship, you know, that I think the, pan- the pandemic perhaps offered us as a gift. But the telos of it all, the end of it all, is this common embodied life together. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, now called AG1. I've been taking AG1 for over a year now, and I can truly, truly feel the difference. So over the years, I've tried many different kinds of uh, nutrition supplements, and I've found AG1 to be the best. It's packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, which just soaks your body with the nutrition that it needs. If you feel uh, sluggish, foggy-headed, or maybe you feel like you're getting sick more than you should, I would highly recommend getting on a daily regimen of AG1. It it supports your immune system, your digestion, it supports your overall gut health, and your gut health is super important for your overall health. And for me, personally, the most important thing that I notice is I feel a noticeable increase in my sustained energy and mental clarity. So what I do is I typically take a serving first thing in the morning, right, right before my coffee, and if I'm feeling particularly run down or stressed out, or if I didn't sleep well the night before, I'll sometimes take another serving uh, of AG1 in the afternoon. And as I like to point out, I was taking AG1 for several months before they started to sponsor the show. So I'm not promoting AG1 because they're like sending me tons of free product or something. I mean, they're not. Maybe they should. I don't know. I should send an email. But for now, I pay the exact same price you do for AG1 because I care about my health. And for the kind of work that I do, I need to be at the top of my game. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drink ag1.com forward slash TITR. That's drinkag1.com forward slash TITR. Check it out. You, I love how you, you cite several kind of scientific studies on the need for human interaction. Um, mm-hmm. There was one, I'm not sure, I don't know if you mentioned or not. Are you familiar with the, the Rosetto effect, Rosetto, Pennsylvania? Yeah. It's this, um, you can Google it. It's easy to find. It's this it's a small town of like Italian immigrants that have been there for mm. several generations. Mm. They're not only living very, very long, but they're mm. incredibly healthy. Like I think almost everybody <laughs> just dies of old age, like in their hundreds or something. Right. Um, they eat a ton of sausage. They drink a lot of wine. Uh, several of them smoke. Right. They don't really exercise. Many of them are kind of overweight, obese, right. and there's zero heart disease or minimal, you know, cancer, right. all these things. And, 
they, they went and studied and like, what is the secret sauce here? They looked at elevation. They looked at climate. They looked at uh, there were, you know, all these things and none of it made sense. The only thing that they can find that attributed to this is they have a, just a really unique off the chart sense of community. Like they mm-hmm. just live life in such a mm. uh, strong community. I mean, potlucks like together all the time, a lot mm. of generations living, you know, tightly knit together. Um, and they said it just showed the the biological effects of living in tight knit community. And I was like, gosh, mm. there's so much ecclesiology. Here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm like, oh man, I, right. cause I, you know, I thought like th- even during the pandemic, and again, there's so many factors here and, and my hat goes off to pastors just scrambling around trying to right. shepherd the people that all, with all they know how to do. So there's no, but like, would it be sufficient if say for whatever reason, I mean, three years ago was a pandemic, but for whatever reason, if like online attendance doubled um, while in-person attendance went down, like say the church of a thousand people that were meeting together say for whatever reason all of a sudden you have like 5000 people gathering uh, for the online services mm-hmm. and say there's only 500 now gathering in person but 5000 are there every single sunday watching right. they're giving they're tithing they're genuinely in their living rooms worshiping um god they're learning from sermons and they're putting it into practice right i think by most standards we would say well that's kind of a win it'd be better if we were together but that's a win. would that be a win? like what would be what would be insufficient with that kind of right. quote unquote success? I mean, other than just simply it'd be, I'd be better to be together. Like what's theologically missing here? Yeah. I, I, constitutionally, I'm allergic to overgeneralizations or simplifications, right? <laughs> so we would want to concede the possibility that many goods would result. Sure. In fact, I, I got taken to task over on Twitter a couple of days ago by folks who are immunocompromised in a very severe way. Okay, sure. And, uh, and they wanted to be me to be even more careful in how I talked about in-person gathering. Fair enough. <clears throat> that, that That is something pastorally that I wish to be s- s- sensitive and sympathetic to. Sure. At the same time, I guess I would say that there's something uh, fundamental about bodies occupying the same space that that invites a way to be together that cannot be replicated online. And maybe the, the analogy here is the difference between playing basketball on um, EA Sports video game mm a bunch of buddies across the city versus playing basketball with those same buddies on the court. You're together. And so it's not a matter of one is together, one is not together, but you're together in categorically different ways. And there's something that you will get to know about each other on the court, bodies bumping up against bodies, bodies in three-dimensional spaces, bodies sweating. There's an odor. There's... um a way in which all nonverbals are communicating at lightning speed that is enabling you to get a feel for each other, uh, a feel for the game, that you cannot acquire that same quote-unquote feel online playing with a console, you know, in in front of a screen. Um, So I I would say, like, just on scientific terms, it's qualitatively, you know, different. 
on, on theological terms, I, I think one of the things that we might draw attention to is the way in which bodies gather together in person invites a kind of vulnerability that cannot be replicated online. Mm-hmm. That is, when I bring my body to a, a physical space, um, I am choosing uh, to not hide uh, in a way that I could perhaps hide more easily on screen by literally hiding my video camera. Now, I can still hide by being present, right? I can hide in my body. And I think that's one of the destructive effects of sin is that it causes us to want to hide from others, to dissimulate, to be something that we're not. But if I choose actively to be vulnerable, uh, and perhaps I have experienced a tragedy of some sort, a death in the family, or or my marriage is breaking down, and I choose to weep um, at a moment in the service, maybe during the singing, maybe during the Lord's Supper, maybe during the sermon, that's a that's a, a like a, another level of vulnerability that invites the possibility of the grace of God being shared by one another. So let me give you an example. A number of months ago, um, in our church, we're an Anglican church, but you know, there's good, solid preaching, expository preaching. We have a little bit of a charismatic kind of bent, and we're pretty liturgical. So, you know, I, it's kind of a nice little combination of <laughs> different liturgical cultures. I'm on the prayer team, which means every so often uh, during the Lord's Supper, you know, people can come back and receive prayer from us. Well, one Sunday, somebody in our congregation came up and asked for prayer of us. This is somebody that I had been for quite some time irritated at. And if I'm honest, I was mad at them. I was angry for a failure <laughs> that I had, you know, a, 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 of relationship that I had experienced with them. This person was not fully aware that I was bitter towards them, that I would have preferred to stay on the other side physically of the room, not just emotionally and mentally and otherwise, but I wanted to be as far away as possible. This person came up, asked for prayer. And obviously, (laughs) my job is to pray. My job is not to say, well, not you today. Well, the way that we normally pray is we ask if we can anoint them with oil. We ask if we can lay a hand on their shoulders. And the person said, yes. The moment I laid my hand on their shoulder was the moment that I felt like the Holy Spirit had, and I'm not sure how else to say this, but miraculously, (laughs) through the physical act of touch, disrupted sort of this Hmm. visceral anger inside of me and opened up the possibility of care for them. Um, Slowly but surely, I think something was softened in me that then opened me up to a a different quality of relationship with this person. That kind of vulnerability is difficult, if not impossible, to replicate online because of that physical proximity and the physical touch that are involved that involve vulnerability on their part of asking for prayer for something that was very uh, kind of honest and vulnerability on my part to be willing to say i have to trust that jesus is bigger than us in this Mm -hmm. moment and so i just i think those are like maybe like a little microcosm of the microcosm that is involved when people gather together and yeah. willingly open themselves up in vulnerable ways. I, can, can, I just want to state, uh, I guess, name the elephant in the room that you and I are talking through a screen. In fact, my whole podcast is disembodied. Right. For the right. most, I mean, I've had a few guests, and I would love to have everybody to fly out and hang out right. with me and do it. Right. Lot. So it's not, it's not because I prefer this. 
so yeah, I guess to take that for for example, there are certain things we do in this day and age that are, you know, embodied together. Is that okay? Like, is is yeah. podcast okay? While acknowledging that, yeah, that this can't be, and I've, I would say this over and over, listening to a podcast or this podcast cannot be your the totality of your kind of like, you know, um, Christian engagement or whatever. It, it plays a an an inadequate insufficient role that might contribute to your whatever your 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 journey of faith or whatever um but can't be the totality of that right. is there something more than that that actually is there something maybe intrinsically wrong with these kind of spaces yeah i i don't think i would say there's something fundamentally or, or theologically wrong with this in as much as God has made a world in which we have the capacity to communicate with each other across distances, you go back far enough in history and you'll have letter writing. And so right. Paul writes true. a letter to a community in another city, and that letter is a, a form of grace, a tangible grace mm. that a community receives. And then that letter and then embeds itself within their life. It reconstitutes and gives them a new imagination, a new vision of what it means to be the body of Christ in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. Mm-hmm. But it is also true to say that Paul consistently says, I so yearn yeah. to be with you face to face. That they're not in competitive relationship uh, or antithetical relationship. But the deepest yearning of his, you know, of his heart, as it were, is to be with them face to face. And and I think that again is is like the consistent trajectory or or, or, or you know the the arc of Holy Scripture is, as Catholics would call it, the beatific vision. You know, to encounter our Lord face to face, to be embraced, be embraced fully by the Lord Jesus. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stay in the beatific vision in perpetuity. Like we behold our maker and in the new creation, then we are redeployed mm-hmm. to do who knows what, right? <laughs> um, so I think there are, you know, that maybe is just an example in an sort of ancient, you know, the early church era. But I write books, you write books. Those right. are tangible products or as, you know, Kindles or electronic products that get disseminated around the earth. And we're so grateful that others experience it. But I think every one of us has been wired uh, to share, you know, a, a space with one another because there, there are certain irreducible goods of being in a common physical space. Mm, that's good. So I don't need to cancel the show. That's good. I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, your analogy with Paul is because I mean, even like, first century letter writing like the letter was kind of a a a representation of the author in his or her absence you know Mm -hmm. and and even the letter uh carrier would often not just read the letter but perform the letter and and they would very much do go out of their way to try to like represent intonation cadence emphasis and and hand gestures to 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 represent the author as best they could in their absence but like you said there's there was this longing like since I cannot be there for whatever reason, this is kind of the best, but inadequate. Like it's 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 incomplete, but it's some kind of semblance right. of what I would long to happen. Which I, I could say that with the podcast. Obviously, I would right. again much rather be talking in person with the microphone on, um, and and people listening, I'm sure, would be like, "This is good." Hopefully, they'd say that. 
some people say it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ones like to show this is good, but gosh, I would much rather. Right. Which is one reason why I started. We started doing conferences, the Theology and mm-hmm. Conference, to give people mm-hmm. an opportunity to um, have an embodied uh, experience. Right. right. I, I want to. So going back to your book, I'm curious. I, I've not read the whole thing yet. Um, are mm-hmm. there certain forms of gathering, liturgies, worship styles, or whatever that you find? resonate more with your kind of theological anthropology uh for mm. instance you can go all the way to like high church where there's huh. incense there's memorization there's participation there's right. stand up kneel down um versus maybe a very low church but say high energy you right. know more of a charismatic kind of setting is one better than the well i'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're gonna say one's not better than the other but i mean i <laughs> Or I don't know. I, I'll maybe let me throw it out there. Maybe I don't know what you're going to say. Is one is one capturing kind of the human experience better than another kind of service is? It does. Uh, I think the case that I try to make in the book is that it's a both hand. Okay. And so I try to show the distinctive benefit of what I call prescriptive uses of the body or what I call the discipline of the body. And then the distinctive benefits of spontaneous uses of the body, or what I call the freedom of the body. I show the you know trajectory of both all throughout Old Testament, all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation, all throughout church history, that each of them it, it, it works, you know, dynamically together to form our whole humanity. And I try to help readers understand that this, this is actually quite intuitive and empirically verifiable. When I go to a sporting event, let's say in the States, uh, a basketball game, a baseball game, invariably there'll be a national anthem. And what do we do when the national anthem, you know, begins? We all stand. Sometimes we put our hand over our heart and we sing with respect. And that's a way for our bodies to do something regardless of personality, regardless of our temperament, regardless of feelings that we feel it befits the object of attention, in this case, the flag or the anthem, you know, in the country. But at some point in the game, you know, our team does something remarkable. Uh, maybe it's a last minute sort of, you know, victory. And then our bodies naturally, uh, like in a way that completely makes sense, stand up and roar and clap and mm-hmm. cheer. And I guess what I'm trying to say is those kinds of, Postures, gestures, movements of the body also have a place in corporate worship that that our God is fully worthy mm-hmm. of attention, respect, honor, dignity, majesty, you know, all that wonderful book of Revelation language that has very little to do um, with my personality type or whether I feel like in the moment. Um, and on the other hand, we see all manner of spontaneous response of the body uh, in Jesus' ministry, and these are overflows of affection for God. Uh, they are unself-protective, unself-conscious expressions of affection for for Jesus. And I think both of those have a place. So I've been to Hillsong <laughs> worship services. I've been to Catholic and Greek Orthodox and Anglo-Catholic kind of worship services. I'm grateful for both. I guess of a mind that both both practices or both you know styles modes have a, a distinctive role in forming us and training and discipling us. It, so is it, does it come down to, you mentioned like personality types? Like, well, like, like for, like, how do we understand 
why some people would be just super attracted to like an orthodox liturgical contemplative low yeah. for lack of better terms low energy there's still right. body movement maybe yeah, similar yeah, yeah. up down right. raising yeah. hands reciting versus somebody who would resonate with like a more hill song like high high energy because I'm I, I okay. Let me just be totally honest with you. Sure. I I've gone through very seasons in life where I would resonate with one more than the other. Sure. Right now, probably more for a while now, I'm in a very low church environment. Even though I personally would resonate much more with a more high church liturgical, mm. I feel I feel like for whatever reason I could connect with God much more. Right on liturgical, but being in a low church environment, I often feel guilty. <laughs> I do. No, I feel like it might have been a Christian because I'm looking around and right. I don't know, but, but there's times when I don't, there's times there's, there's certain kind of low church, high energy environments that I, it, it just comes upon me. I'm not forcing it. I'm, I'm right. just not going to do anything that I feel like do it. Well, I don't know how to say that, but like, I, I, yeah, sometimes a high energy just like stresses me out. It just makes, right. I don't know. <laughs> I start <laughs> cynical and, and I don't want to do that. Right. Um, so what's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I should call your wife and, and get an answer on that one. Uh, what is wrong with you? Um, there's nothing wrong with you. I mean, obviously, all of us find ourselves in different seasons of life where we might have very specific, particular God-blessed needs for different kinds of things. I was raised in the Bible church world. I grew up in Guatemala, which is a predominantly Roman Catholic world. So not only were we low church, we were like low church and anti-Catholic, uh, like actively, like whatever the Catholics did, we didn't do. Uh, and then when I was in college, I began feeling a hunger for something more expressive and spontaneous. So I started visiting a Catholic church. I mean, not, not a Catholic, a charismatic church. By the end of college, I was at the University of Texas. I started feeling a hunger for something more deeply rhythm. So I started visiting the Episcopal church, like on, uh, you know, Advent and, and uh, Lent. And I found that it, it, it resonated, like it, it fed me in a very, very deep way. Uh, I became Anglican when I was in seminary, but I did internships at a non-denom charismatic church and ended up being a pastor there. And I was very deeply grateful. I mean, I was there during the 90s when, you know, the vineyard, you know, Toronto vineyard barking dogs and roaring lion stuff, you know, was going on. So it was very expressive. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Yeah, at the end of my time as a pastor, I realized I had this uh, insatiable hunger for something perhaps historically rooted and liturgically rhythmed and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I, my wife and I became Anglican full time. I became an Anglican priest. I'm deeply grateful for it. But I still, maybe the gift of those who, who are in these kind of traditions is that you have the church calendar that allows you really to go through all of those different contours of the faith, sort of the exuberant, joyful, open, expressive, but then also the quiet, the contemplative, the gentle. And I think that maybe is a gift that the whole body of Christ could take advantage of. Uh, you know, Pentecostals, Charismatics, non-denoms, they could take advantage of the church calendar if they wish. And then my Anglo-Catholic friends who do believe that everything has been prescribed and was prescribed, you know, 1500 years ago, and there's no point in trying to reinvent anything. I would want to invite them into the possibility that a spontaneous gesture uh, uh, with your body is actually, it befits. I mean, even as we see David, King David in, in 2 Samuel, be a part of this long ritual procession of the ark 
And then as he enters Jerusalem, there's this spontaneous outburst, a physical, you know, kinetic dancing, which is, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous in the time. Uh, and I think that kind of dancing can still be felt to be ridiculous, but I think there's something beautiful about the unself-protective, unself-conscious, that just the fully yielding ourselves to God and to trust that the Holy Spirit is alive and at large in this moment, not just in the designing of the liturgy, which perhaps the fourth century got right as some, you know. And I argue against that in the book. I have a chapter on history. I argue against sort of these false appeals to history is like, well, that's when it was the real, you know, worship and we should, you know, map it onto that. So is it a danger when, and I guess this is true of every single church I think I've ever been in. Like there, there is a particular style of, of worship, not just worship as in the singing portion, but just this, maybe the gathering. Sure. Um, I, I, my one, I guess my, I never thought about it like this, but like, could that monolithic style of individual churches war against diversity like mm. you, you go to a highly charismatic church and it's okay. it's going to be off-putting for people that don't resonate with that brand of whatever um right. Right. By, and vice versa somebody deeply liturgical somebody who right. is long maybe for whatever but the way god has wired them they just need like it's good for them to be sure. in a more charismatic sure. environment and they're just not going to be and then so that liturgical body lacks that kind of person and vice versa um is that yeah. is that a a problem I, I don't know how to get i can't imagine a church like one sunday you know it's charismatic <laughs> style next sunday they're swinging incense or something i, I wouldn't <laughs> mind that i personally i don't know yeah. uh, a little more interesting but <laughs> i mean you know I mean, it, it does get us into a little bit of a a, a naughty territory and i mean mm-hmm. Kate, O-T-T-Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, although it could be bad behaved. Uh, they're, they're excess. Every, nobody has a, you know, a corner on the market of, of you know, egregious behavior. Uh, all, all of us, all liturgical traditions, you know, suffer the effects of sin. Um, on the one hand, I would like to concede in principle that the many-membered uh, Holy Spirit varied nature of Christ's body allows for different personality types to play themselves out in like a family or a tribe, you know, and that one family of the body of Christ is going to be more quiet and contemplative. And one family or tribe of the body of Christ will be more expressive and and and, and loud. I would like in principle to concede that, but the biblical text keeps arguing against me. And to the extent that the Psalms, as the worship book of Israel and as the worship book of, you know, the church, uh, at least for the majority of church history, the Christians have believed that it was a defining grammar for how we worship and pray. That, along with what I see in the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation, seems to invite both disciplined uses of our bodies. That is, we raise hands as a sign of honor. But we also raise hands because our Lord Jesus is worthy of that kind of expression of affection. And, uh, you know, the Lord invites us to silence, let all the earth, let all the inhabitants of the earth keep silence. And that same Lord invites us to join the, the sonorous, exuberant, expressive praise of all creation. Um, and our bodies are designed to want and need 
And so I, I guess I would hope that maybe it's a rhythm over time. It's not a variety show on every Sunday morning, but over time there is a place for that. And I, I, I do think, you know, like Jewish communities, maybe Jewish Orthodox communities have retained some of that manifold rhythm, you know, the different festivals uh, in the Jewish calendar. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very expressive, lots of dancing. Mm-hmm. And some of them are very quiet, very serious, very what we might call reverential. But I, in the book, I write about how the when, the when Christianity was legalized in the fourth century, the Church of Rome slowly but surely came to define sort of a liturgical practice for the rest of, let's just call it Europe, Europe at the time. Um, and uh, many of those in, in in leadership in the Church of Rome came from upper classes, uh, aristocratic classes, where how you moved your body was a very slow, solemn, so-called dignified, and mm. that was then mapped on to like true faithful reverential worship. Okay, yeah. That ended up being very damaging for yeah. the Catholics in Africa. Huh. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were wanting to say, I don't know, our cultural, our people come most fully alive and expressive, you know, kinetic worship. And so, you know, it's not until the 1960s and, you know, the, the big Vatican II gathering um, where some major changes were, you know, uh, were put into effect to give liberty to the church, Catholic Church in Africa, Latin, Latin America and Asia. And I think that still plays itself out in some Western, you know, uh, North American context. So you raise another interesting question. Does a monolithic form of worship, could it war against multi-ethnicity? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've got, we go to church. It's a conservative church here in Boise, um, low church, conservative. Um, but several of, our, several of our friends that also go there are from from Rwanda and, and the Congo. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, just, just literally two days ago, my friend from Rwanda, he was like, gosh, when you're singing, like, how come you guys aren't dancing? I just want to dance, but no one's doing that. So I feel weird. No, it's, just, it's hard for me to not dance. Like, I don't. Right. And I was like, yeah, I, I would rather be in a church. That you, <laughs> no, like, I, but even that, like, it brings in this kind of like as different cultures and ethnicity slash cultures have different societal expectations or whatever you want to call it, or just norms of human behavior. Like that's a beautiful thing. And I just wonder if such a strongly monolithic kind of church service wars against that. Um, There, there was a, a a famous black preacher from the seventies. He, he can't save miraculously out of gangs. And anyway, he, he gave a sermon on kind of the multi, this is back in the seventies before people are talking mm. about kind of multi-ethnic mm. churches. And he was like, you know, when y'all, and it was a large, it was all white audience. And he was talking about kind of things that prevent kind of multi-ethnicity. And he was like, yeah, when y'all sing, you know, amazing grace. And he kind of imitated white people singing amazing grace. And he's like, when we sing amazing grace, we sing it like, and he just starts going full gospel and everybody's <laughs> laughing, but also like, ah, like the, the manner in which we, go about kind of even singing certain songs mm. kind of reinforces just kind of mono ethnic kind of culture. I don't know. And I don't want it's, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. So many things we do. It's like, well, it prevents this and does that and all these blind spots. So I don't, I don't know. You can, you can get almost incapacitated by, <laughs> but have you thought about that angle though? I the, have, yeah. So in a previous book that I wrote called glimpses of the new creation, I, I explore how, how different media of art, you know, poetry, narrative, music, visual, architectural arts, and so on and so forth form us uniquely. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they do something uniquely in our bodies and through our bodies when we gather together as Christ's body. But at the end of that book, I wrestle with a question of what it means for us to recognize that each of us as individuals, each of us as a family, each of us as a community, each of us as a, a culture likely have a mother tongue. Mm. And our mother tongue is like a, a shorthand for a way in which I and the way that God has wired me or my community or my people, like just we've been wired somehow, some way through a combination of nature and nurture mm-hmm. to love God and know God in this unique, distinctive, particular way. And so I write a chapter in which I try to make a case, a theological case that God wants to both preserve and grace the particularity of my personality. God Mm. delights to work in and through it. It, God is not erasing my personality. He's not erasing the personality of my community, of my people group, as it were. But at the same time that we would remain porous um, and and rather than calcified or ossified, that I am porous to the rest of the members of Christ's body, we as a community remain porous. So what might it mean for us over time to be cross-pollinating? Okay. So that, um, let's say, let's just say the Black church is able to sing in distinctively Black church ways, um, which are kinetically expressive in one form or another. There's a lot of talking back that happens in, in the ways that like Mennonites maybe might worship differently mindful that there are different kinds of Mennonites. Um, But what would it mean for different members of Christ's body to remain porous or semi-porous to other members of Christ's body across the global church so that we're over time constantly being enriched? So there's no erasure of my personality, but my personality gets richer and richer and truer. Mm -hmm. And there's some things that are fundamentally true about all bodies before God. Okay. And that's, I think, the case that I'm trying to make. There okay. are some basic fundamental theological grammars of the body that should be true for all. Like all bodies understand what gravity is. And that's why musically uh, sounds that are low and heavy cause bodies and emotions and brains to go low and heavy. And music and notes and sounds and compositions of sounds that are high tend to like lift us up, cause us to feel expansive or airy really? or... Oh, yeah. And I mean, scientists have written about this for years. So there's a reason why music that goes up causes us to feel up. And it shows up in our in our vocabulary. I feel up today. Why do you feel up? Why do you feel down? Well, because gravity pulls down and, you know, there are things that pull us up. And so our vocabulary um, sort of re sort of, Hmm. you know, iterates or expresses what we experience of the world fundamentally. And I think the Psalms should function as a kind of default for training us in faithful worship. And it does include things that perhaps my charismatic friends would stand to learn from, my mm. Anglican friends could stand to learn from. And I think at the end of the day, you know, where I land in the book is hopefully all of what we do with our body is forming Christ's likeness in us, which is to say the fruit of the spirit, which is to say at the end of the day, humility, before our maker, humility before one another, and wonder, uh, a sense of that we're caught up in something bigger than ourselves. It's the movement of of, of planets, as C.S. Lewis talks about. It's a movement of angels, you know, who are coursing around the lamb. It's the movement of saints throughout the centuries who have inclined themselves. And so 
if our, our whatever we do with our bodies is not turning us into more Jesus-like humans, it is definitely failing, whatever it is that that's we good. do. Well, that's, that's a good place to wrap things up. Uh, I never held up the body, uh, your book here for our, okay. our viewers. This is a, a body of praise, <laughs> um, understanding the role of our body. Or let me get the title right here because I can't see it anymore. <laughs> understanding the role of our physical bodies in worship by David Taylor. David, thanks so much for coming on Theology and Roll. I, I have so many other questions, but we'll have to, we'll have to continue this at another time. But uh, um, a little quick shout out to uh, Fuller Seminary. They're not paying me to do this, but uh, if you want to learn more, you can go and take courses under David Taylor and many, many other uh, well-known faculty. Um, I took a German course at Fuller Pasadena years, years ago. Yeah, it was a summer German course to prepare me for my PhD. And I remember being so jealous of how Awesome. <laughs> you guys is you're at the you're at the Pasadena campus, right? I, I'm not actually. Oh, yeah. I no, we have a campus in Houston, and, and I was there for five years. But then four years ago, I moved to Austin because. Okay, so this is the I don't know if it's an irony or just it's life. In moving to Austin, I became even more disembodied as a professor. But I moved to Austin because every member of my family was feel experiencing physical ailments and oh, I gosh. Need physically proximate to them wow. so it's an odd sort of thing uh in that my professional life i am mainly through a screen okay. but i'm here because i needed to be physically close to oh, family gosh. oh sorry to hear that oh okay so you're in austin, austin yeah. for for fuller okay well either way fuller is you guys have many different uh, opportunities for uh <laughs> so check out fuller seminary and uh thanks david for being on the show really appreciate the conversation thank you sir This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.